Daniel chapter 2, I won't read the whole thing to you. I do want to read the opening 11 verses. Pick me up in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2. It reads, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Sounds more like a nightmare. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. It gets a little crazy here. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me uh, gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Man, these, these dudes are freaking out now. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Stop stalling. Don't try to play me. Uh, that's how it reads in the original. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one, one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you speak to us? Uh, from your word here, Lord God, we need to be enlightened and encouraged uh, when it comes to what it means to take you to work. Do it, Father, we pray. Amen. A young girl was riding her bike one day, and she was riding her bike in an undeveloped part of town where they were just now starting to, to build homes. A new subdivision was starting to emerge. She came upon three construction workers were laying brick. This young girl pulled up and she said to one of the construction workers, hey, mister, mister, what are you doing? He seemed a bit annoyed and gruffly responded after wiping the sweat off his brow. I'm just out here in this heat trying to, trying to pay some bills. I need this paycheck so I can put food on my table so I can eke out a living uh, so I can put clothes on my kid's back. I, I'm just out here trying to make a living. Undeterred and unsatisfied, the young girl then turned to the second worker, and she said, hey, mister, mister, what are you doing? The second worker was a lot more pleasant, and he said, young girl, you see that man way over there? And he diverted her attention to a man um, on the other side of the lot. And she says, yes, well, that man happens to be my father. And my father owns this brick business that supplied us with the bricks to actually build this home. He says, I'm here because I'm actually in training 
One day I'm going to take over the company. I'm getting to know the business. And already I've got a lot of dreams and aspirations for how this company can be the largest and number one brick company in the world. And we're going to make a whole lot of money. And it's just going to be great. Undeterred and unsatisfied, the young girl said to the third worker, Hey, mister, mister, what are you doing? He scraped off the mortar, slung it on the ground, and he smiled. He says, young girl, you want to know what I'm doing? Yeah, I may be building a house, but I'm building a house with the hopes that one day it will turn into a home. Family's going to move in here, and maybe they'll have kids while they're here, and this will be a place where they will train their kids in great principles and, and instill in them wonderful ca- character, and they'll get unleashed from this house, and maybe decades later, they'll, they'll sell this home to another young family, and they'll come in here and raise their kids and strengthen their kids in great principles, and, and, and these, these young people will grow up in a home where, where they'll be strengthened in character and strong families are the bedrock of a strong nation. What am I doing? I'm making our world a better place. Moral of the story is the first two individuals had jobs. The second individual had a vocation. I shared with you the other week that the idea of the word vocation comes from the Latin vocatio from which we get the idea of calling from. It's the idea of of a job that is tethered to a purpose. It it is the idea of of a person who who goes to work not for very consumeristic purposes, but they are are going to work out out of a larger sense of destiny. This idea of purpose is really important. Many of us have read the classic work by Fyodor Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov. And in a moving passage, the Inquisitor tells us in horrific terms what happens to the human soul who drifts through life without a sense of purpose. Look at what he says in this passage. For the secret of man's being is not only to live, but to live for something definite, Without a firm notion of what he is living for, man will not accept life and will rather destroy himself than remain on earth. What we need are not just jobs, but we need jobs that are tethered to a purpose. Now, some of you are here and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and you need to understand that the biblical idea of work is is a rather significant one. The biblical idea says that that we were created, all of us, no matter where we may be on the faith continuum, that all of us were created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Your mom and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And again, one of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you, you was a surprise. While you may have been a surprise to your biological parents, you are not a surprise to your eternal maker. You are created on purpose and for a purpose. Psalm 139 says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been made in the image of God. God has given you gifts. He's given you abilities. He's given you talents. And a part of what that means is that we're to use our God-given abilities and gifts and talents 
to bless other people and to bring glory to God. And one of the ways we do that is through the, the venue of work. We learned in the first week of the series something surprising, and that is if you were to read your Bibles, um, as good as it gets in your Bible is round about Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and then the last book of the Bible, round about uh, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Everywhere in between is filled with a lot of heartache. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, this is life as good as it gets, and what do we see? Right off the bat, we see work. God works. For six days, he creates the heaven, heavens and the earth. And then what does he do? He creates man and he gives him a wife and he, he calls them to work by exercising dominion over the garden. So work is not a fruit of the fall. It is a part of God's divine will for our lives. That's why some of y'all left here with a bad attitude that first week when I told you. Most theologians believe that work will be a part of Heaven. <laughs> and that messed some of us up because we're spending 20 and 30 years working, working, working with the idea of just kind of retiring and cruising our way into the kingdom of God. Well, enjoy it because you'll have an eternity to get back to it. Except for the difference is there won't be any thorns or thistles. God has created us to glorify him, and we do so through his work. This is what Paul gets at in writing the Colossians. Paul says it this way, or rather to the Corinthians. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. To the Colossians, Paul probes this a little deeper when he says, whatever you do, hear it now, work heartily, not as for your boss, not as for the CEO of your company, but work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's why to turn in mediocre work is one of the most unchristian things you can do. You serve a great God who has given you great abilities and great skills, and therefore we are to do great work because we're doing it for the glory of God. So that the Christian understanding says there's, there's basically two, two primarily approaches to work. And all of us in this room, we, we fit in one of these two categories. You'll, you'll get up, you'll go to work tomorrow, and, um, and most people in our world, I think it's safe to say, they work from a very consumeristic perspective. Man, I'm at work because I'm trying to pay these bills. I'm at work because I'm trying to save up enough money to buy a house. I'm at work because I'm trying to fund my lifestyle. I'm at work because I'm trying to do something for me. Or, or maybe I'm at work because this work brings me a personal sense of enjoyment and fulfillment. So, so do you see the punchline here is me, and work becomes a means to facilitate me. It's not the Christian idea of work. Christian idea of work is not to be a consumer. It's to be a cultivator. God hasn't called us to view work as something I do to satisfy me. He's actually called me to use my work to cultivate. 
What, what does it mean to cultivate? Here's the idea. The idea of cultivate means to, to bring order out of chaos. It, it, it's, it's the idea of, of bringing a sense of order and beauty and human flourishing out of chaos. That's the idea here. Um, musicians cultivate. If you're a musician, you, you, you take chaotic notes and you order them and structure them in such a way that when you sit down to play them, a sense of beauty emerges. And when we hear those notes, there's a sense of which we're bettered and there's human flourishing. Basketball coaches, they cultivate. They take the raw material of five individual players and they structure their plays so that there's a sense of spacing and movement and that ball gets passed around and the ball goes through the hole and there's a sense of beauty that emerges out of that. Entrepreneurs cultivate where we take the, the, the raw, chaotic mass of ideas and we hone into these ideas and we bring a sense of, of beauty and structure so that our world is better. To work to the glory of God means I take chaos and I order it and I wade into it and I structure it in such a way so that beauty emerges out of it. Go ahead and put this picture on the scene, on the screen here with me. I was, um, just the other day, I did the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in ministry. Uh, I was at Angola State Prison in Louisiana. Nah, I hadn't gotten in trouble. Um, I was there preaching the gospel to 6,000 inmates. Um. And that's, the altar was flooded. Hundreds of people came to know Jesus. Uh, it was a phenomenal time. Um, uh, I spent time on death row. They, they said to me, Pastor, we want you to preach the gospel here, but the death row inmates can't mix in with the general population of prisoners. So after you're done preaching the gospel, we're going to open up the wings of death row, and we want you to go down the wings and just talk to these individuals and share the gospel uh, with them. Uh, so... Uh, a side note, I thought, you know, these dudes would still be in their cells. <laughs> they get out four hours a day, and two of those hours was when I was there. And they opened up the wing. This is a true story. They opened up the wing, man, and I was, I was nervous. And uh, I, it must have been really obvious I was nervous because one of the inmates said to me, you're going to be all right, man. You're going you're gonna to be all right, man. But, but I'm sharing the gospel with these people. And I'm, I'm talking to one of them. Been locked up there since 2006. He can get the call any day that it's, it's done. <laughs> and they tell you not to Google these people. Well, I Googled. Wow. These, these brothers are looking for hope. And a lot of times, I shouldn't say a lot of times, sometimes I go out of town, I sit on the plane to come back, and there's just sense, this sense of, ah, I don't know if that was the best use of my time. But I sat on the plane on Thursday to come back, and there was this deep sense of satisfaction in me. I didn't get paid a single dime. 
I was pretty much paid for my own ticket. But there was just this sense of, that's what I signed up for. And it's all because I'm walking in my vocation. It's not because I'm a preacher, but when you are walking in what God created you to do, and you understand that work is given to you by God, not just to make money, but to actually help other people, to encourage other people, to make our world a better place. No amount of money can solve that. Some of you all, the converse is true, some of you all are making all kinds of money, but you are miserable because you have a job but not a vocation. No amount of money can replace the sense of satisfaction of knowing that I'm walking in my destiny. God's called you to be a cultivator. He wants you, through your work, to cultivate. Not just consume, but to cultivate. What does that look like? Let's jog through it. We come now to Daniel chapter 2, and like I told you in the first week, one of the things that I love about Daniel, and one of the reasons why I'm drawn to him, is Daniel hadn't graduated from seminary. Um, he's not full-time clergy. Uh, he's not in full-time vocational ministry. Uh, Daniel has gone to uh, the top-notch secular university in the world, what we might call the University of Babylon. We studied it in Daniel chapter 1. It's a three-year program. He graduates at the top of his class, so much so uh, that Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel, who at the end of chapter 1 is about 17 years of age, most scholars tell us. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is drawn to Daniel, and he gives him uh, one of the top jobs in the government. Daniel works in government. Where is Daniel? Daniel is in Babylon. Who is Daniel? Daniel is a Jew, a minority, working in a secular society called Babylon. Why is Daniel there? Well, he's there because the Jews have been exiled there after years of disobedience. And yet, one of the things that we understood the first week is, is that Babylon, if you study it in the Bible, it is often uh, mentioned over 90 times in the scriptures, many times in the New Testament, as a metaphor for the world. And one of the things that we understand is, God doesn't just care about Christians, God cares about the world. The Bible says in John 3, 6, 16, for God so loved not just abundant life, God so loved the world. And so in a moving passage in Jeremiah chapter 29, he's talking to Jews who are, who are on the precipice of going to Babylon, and look at what he says as these Jews are about to venture out into this very secular society. Look at it with me. God says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. This is in Babylon. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Here it is, but seek the welfare of the city. What's the city? Babylon. 
this pagan city. God says, I want you to seek its welfare where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. On whose behalf? Babylon's behalf. For when Babylon does good, you'll, you'll do good. That's what the idea is. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. How do we cultivate? Daniel gives us a fourfold strategy of reaching the bay for Christ through our work. Number one, you must embrace your call that God has actually called you here. Like Babylon, the Bay Area is a thoroughly secular place. I've gotten emails from some of you. You don't like it when I say that. It's the truth. This ain't the Bible Belt. This ain't home team Christianity, all right? This is a secular place, and yet what we see through God's teaching on Babylon is God loves the bay. He loves the bay. And what God is saying here is, I'm actually calling Christians to come here from all over the world, and I'm calling you to come here not ultimately to just enjoy it, not ultimately to have day trips to Napa or day trips to Monterey. I'm calling you here because I want you to be my light and love on this bay, and through your work, see, people come to know Jesus, but that will only happen when I have a missions mentality that I am on assignment here. I'm on assignment here. I know this is tough. The Bay Area is just, it's tough. It's tough. The housing, ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Some of y'all came here, thought you could find housing in a weekend. And you realize how foolish that was. It's hard. But if we're going to reach the bay, you got to have a missions mindset on your street there in San Jose. you got to see yourself as the chaplain in your neighborhood there in Fremont. you got to understand that ultimately I'm not just called here because it's the dream job. I'm called here and sent here on assignment. I'm here on assignment. I'm here on assignment. This is, this is where God's called me. And so listen, listen I, I, know, I know some of us, man, you're going, man, it's just, it's just tough here. Let me just cash out. I heard I can buy 1,000 acres in Nashville for $20. Let me just go. Trust me, you'd rather be struggling but be in the center of God's will than to be living high on the hog and out of his will. And what the Bay Area needs is the next generation of Daniels and Daniels who say, God sent me here, and I'm not leaving here until he releases me. Secondly, there's chaos. You've got to be called to Babylon, but realize Babylon is often synonymous with chaos. There's one word that sums up Daniel chapter 2. It's the word chaos. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream. Um, his sleep 
leaves him. He's disturbed. I think it's uh, the better word here is nightmare. He's freaking out. He calls in all the magicians, all the enchanters. I love it, all the wise men. And if you just read through the book of Daniel, it's just kind of irony. These wise men don't know nothing. I mean, they, they're getting the easiest paycheck ever. He calls in the wise men. He says to them in so many words, listen, guys, here's how we normally roll. Uh, the way this normally works is I have a dream. I tell you the dream. You then give me the interpretation. Uh, we're going to flip the script right now. Uh, I've had a dream. I, I'm not just going to ask you for the interpretation. I actually need you to tell me what I dreamt. And these wise men, uh, particularly those from the southern part of Babylon, they're like, this man's cheese done slid off his cracker. His elevator ain't going all the way up to the top. What is going on here? Now, now, why would Nebuchadnezzar do this? Well, if you understand the nature of his dream, you can see it. The nature of the dream is he dreamed that there's an image. Daniel would interpret that Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is actually the head of gold. And in this image, a stone comes and cuts it down. Nebuchadnezzar is probably thinking, the reason why he's freaking out is, he's probably thinking that this is an assassination on his life. So the reason why he doesn't want to tell him the dream is, if they think it's an assassination, they're going to actually encourage people to rise up and form a coup and take Nebuchadnezzar out. So he holds it close to his vest, and he's saying, I'm not even going to tell you the dream. I need you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. Oh, and by the way, if you can't do it, all of you die. We shut down the whole magician department. And there's chaos. There's chaos. Many of you all are going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to go to work in Babylon, and there's going to be chaos on your jobs. In fact, some of your jobs, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a paycheck if there wasn't chaos. If you're a doctor, that's you. Maybe you work in the emergency room. Maybe you're an oncologist. The very nature of your profession is tied to sin, and sin has done damage on the body. So your job is, is to cultivate. It's to step into the chaos and seek to bring order and health out of the chaos. Others of you, you're therapists. Your job is predicated on chaos. All hell is breaking loose in someone's life or in a relationship, whatever it may be. And, and they're going to sit in your office and bawl their eyes out. And you're going to need to step into the chaos. Others of you, maybe it's just company chaos. Maybe you're a part of that startup and you're getting word, word spreading around the office, man, that the company's not doing well, it's never really taken off, and, and the investor's about to pull their funding, and next thing you know, you're going to be looking for a job, and there's pandemonium, and people are worrying and worrying and worrying, what's going to happen to me? Others, maybe you're a more established company, and, and someone's going to come in, you're hearing, and they're going to buy you out. Maybe they're going to shut down your department, and everybody is worrying and worrying and worrying. Others of you, maybe your company's doing well. You're, you're just dealing with some foolish people. Just some knuckleheads. Gossiping all the time, backbiting all the time. Folk you thought you could trust, but they go on behind you to your boss, and all of a sudden the promotion you thought what you was going to get, you're not going to get. And folks sleeping around with one another, and you just got all this mess. And some of you are like, man, I'm out. Let me remind you, you work in Babylon. And every company has its share of mess. Growing up, I, I used to love Superman. That was my show. 
Of course, Superman's alter ego is Clark Kent. Clark Kent's kind of this bumbling, nerdy individual and just kind of the absent-minded professor. But all of a sudden, chaos will happen. A robber will start wreaking havoc and stuff start going wrong. And then all of a sudden, Clark Kent, man, don't let him mess around and find a phone booth. Um, okay, so for those of you in your 20s, phone booth, how do I explain this? How do I explain this to you? He goes into the phone booth and he emerges as Superman, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. And all of a sudden, Superman steps into the chaos. And when he's done, order emerges. That's your assignment. When you go to work tomorrow, amid all the chaos, while everybody else is worrying, we need some Daniels and Daniels who have a mind-blowing peace a peace that passes all understanding because they understand my hope ain't built on your paycheck. You are not my source. God's my source. We need some Daniels and Daniels who will step into the company and who will say, I don't need to sleep with the boss to get the promotion. I don't need to lie. I don't need to uh, compromise my integrity to rise to the top. God got me here, and God, if he wants, will keep me here and will promote me while I'm here. I am walking in integrity. That's what we need. People who work in Babylon. So Daniel gets the news. They're about to shut down the, the department. He's got this fourfold strategy of cultivating. He's called to Babylon. There's chaos in Babylon. But then Daniel gets the news. They're about to shut down the, the department, and everybody's going to get killed. One of his jobs is like one of these magicians. And watch it. Daniel, in great faith, calls an appointment with the king and says, King, I, I just want to let you know, I can give you the dream and the interpretation. Let's set a date. Put it on our iCal apps. I will step in, and I'll tell you what the dream is. Just give me some moments. I'll do it. And so in great faith, Nebuchadnezzar believes him. They set the appointment. Daniel then goes home, the text says, and he doesn't go home to worry. He doesn't go home to fret. He's not filled with anxiety. He ain't popping Maalox. The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his command, com companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. It says that he went home with his colleagues from his job who share his passion for God. And the first thing they do is they says, we ain't going to worry about this. We're going to fall on our face and we're going to seek God to give us what we need to do the job that needs to be done in Babylon. How often do you pray about your job? How often do you, do you stop worrying and you start trusting? Have you submitted your job in Babylon to God? When I was in high school, there was this one class I wasn't doing well in. I was struggling in this class, and uh, the finals were coming up, and I, um, I needed to do well uh, if I wanted to get an A in the class. And um, so I'm staying up all night before the final and studying and 
worrying and studying and worrying and studying and worrying. I just, I got to knock this bad boy out, studying and worrying and studying and worrying. And finally, I walk into class the next day, hoping I, I you know, I know all the information. I, I walk into class, and what I see blows my mind. Because not only has the teacher handed out the test, but all my buddies got their textbooks with them, and the textbooks are wide open as they're taking this test. I said to my boy Rollo, I said, Rollo, what's going on up in here? He said, man, this is an open book test. <laughs> here I've been studying and worrying and fretting and studying and worrying and fretting, and the teacher has says, you can actually use the book to navigate the test. Some of y'all are, are, are worrying and worrying and worrying and worrying about what's going to happen in your life. You're worrying and worrying about your job. And it's hard to be in the book and worry at the same time. God's given you his word. Everything you need to live the kind of life that God's called you to live, especially on your job, is found in his word. Let me encourage you with what his word says. Do you know his word says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging bread? Do you not know that the word says that he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it? Do you not know that his word says all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose? All means all. So even if you get laid off, God God is still going to take care of you. Stop worrying and start reading. He's got you covered. So one of the strongest witnesses you can have on your job is you walk in there. Here's how you know you're walking with the Lord. Nobody may even know you're a Christian, but the peace that you carry and the light that you have is so strong, you end up spending company time counseling folk, and you ain't even a counselor because you've been walking with the wonderful counselor. And people come to you, and they're just, there's something different about you. Why aren't you going crazy? Because the book says he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Let's go home on this one. Daniel cultivates. How do you cultivate? You got to embrace the call. Settle down. Build houses here. Well, you can't do that in the bay. But settle down. <laughs> settle down. Embrace the call. Step into the chaos. Connect with God. Fourthly, and we touched on it last week, but I need to revisit it, competency. Competency. I don't have time to read it all, but verses 36 to 45, Daniel steps in, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the job. You asked me to tell you what you dreamt in the interpretation. The other people can't deliver. And the, other, the reason why the other folk can't deliver is because they don't walk with my God. I've given this thing to the Lord, and the Lord has enabled me to do the job. He tells him the dream, and he gives him the interpretation. 
Now, some of you are like, okay, Brian, well, this is a direct revelation. What does this really have to do with competency? I, I, I would beg to differ. Uh, look with me on the screen at Daniel chapter 1, verse 17. Daniel chapter 1, verse 17 says these words. As for these four youths, speaking of Daniel, of which he was a part of, God gave them, God gave them, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams so that Daniel is able to do this job because God had given him the gift. So Daniel is just walking in his gift. Now two chapters later, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's going to get saved. He's going to worship the most high God. But that begins... With before Daniel even says a word about God, Daniel does a great job. I said it to you two weeks ago, it bears repeating. The most effective witness you have on your job in Babylon is excellence. Don't come telling nobody about Jesus if you do horrible work. If you're lazy, keep Jesus to yourself. We need salespeople who are going to kill it. We need educators who are going to kill it. We need people who are just going to do an amazing job because that's where the witness begins. In 1989, United Airlines Flight 811 was being piloted by a Christian when 22,000 feet in the air on its way from Honolulu to New Zealand, the forward cargo door exploded open and sucked out nine passengers. At the same time, true story, uh, the debris from that door hit the right engines and it caused engine failure. And here's the pilot, this Jesus-loving man, who in the next several minutes is just going through this horrific experience, but praise the Lord, he's able to land it on an incredibly smooth landing. After landing, he was asked by an interviewer what he was thinking in those first few moments, and he said this. He said, I said a prayer for my passengers momentarily and then got back to business. Tim Keller, who relays this story, offers this insight. Will you look at it with me? When United Airlines Flight 811 got into trouble, the greatest gift Captain Cronin had for his passengers was his experience in good judgment. In those moments of peril, it mattered not to the passenger how Captain Cronin related to his co-workers or how he communicated his faith to others. The critical issue was this. Was he competent enough as a pilot to bring that badly damaged plane in safely? Through our work, we can touch God in a variety of ways. But if the call of the Christian is to participate in God's ongoing creative process, the bedrock of our ministry has to be competency. So what we needed from the captain, I don't need you to come on the PA system and say, let's pray. <laughs> I need you to say a quick prayer with your eyes open. And I need you to focus. <laughs> That's what I need. That's the witness Do your job. You want to be a light? Do your job. Do your job. Work heartily. 
as for the Lord. I want the praise team to come. We're out of here. But of course, of course, the supreme example of all this isn't Daniel. It's the new and better Daniel, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ stepped into the chaos of this world, took on flesh, dwelt among us. You talk about a person who did a great job. He stepped into other people's chaos. He, he healed lepers. He raised the dead. He caused the blind to see. You talk about jobs well done. And often he did it without the appropriate resources. Five, what some people believe, 20,000 people hungry. And this little kid has a dumb idea. I got a few pieces of fish and a few loaves of bread. Jesus says, I can take that and do such a great job with it that everybody has lunch. This is what Jesus did. But his ultimate act of competency was was embracing the call to go to the cross, to step into the biggest mess we'll ever experience. It's the problem of sin. That's all of us friends in this room. All of us in this room has just made a huge mess of our lives. That's what I shared with one individual on death row this week. He was there for raping somebody and then at the same time murdered her boyfriend. He had one simple question. He says, Pastor, do you think God still loves me? The gospel we believe says there's nothing I can ever do that will separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Right there, we had the opportunity of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Over 4,000 murderers in this prison. The altar is just flooded with folk who have done horrific things in their lives. I talked to one, one individual. So many people are getting saved in this prison that they're actually planting churches inside the prison. And the pastors are inmates. talked to this one guy who's been locked up since 1989. He gets saved while he's there. He's been there for 30 years, was just denied parole. He's pastoring. He feels devastated, but I love it. He says, I guess God's called me here. And he says, while I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to lead as many people as I can to Jesus. I'm going to serve with joy and to see him worship with joy. The way he worshiped God put many of us to shame the way we worship this morning. He is serving five life sentences. I don't know how they came up with this one. Plus five years. So wait a minute. I got to die, then come back, die, then come back, die, then come back. And then you're going to give me five more years? Yeah, here's this person just serving with joy. God 
is working all things together for his good and for his glory. So friends, I'm probably talking to a group of people maybe haven't committed murder, but if God can step into that 18,000-acre prison and see many come to faith in Jesus Christ and renew them and restore them, God can handle whatever it is you've done. So God is saying, would you accept my son Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you? I want to invite our elders and prayer team members to come forward as we're closing out our service. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is still in the business of stepping into the chaos that is our lives and says, let me just work on you. And when I'm done, I will bring beauty and order out of chaos. So some of you are here today and you're saying, Brian, my life is hectic right now. It is chaotic right now. And I need Jesus in my life. Maybe you're saying that uh, I need to get saved. Others of you, maybe you're saying, I, I am saved, but it's still hectic and chaotic, maybe through your own bad choices. I just need someone to pray with me. Maybe someone is here today and, and you're saying, I, I, I've learned some things about work. And, and to be honest with you, Pastor, I'm not shining as a light the way that I should. I need someone to pray for me that I would steward the call to shine as a light on my job. That's what I need prayer for. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray as we close out this service, we pray for a couple of things. Father, would you save someone's soul? Someone's here today, and sin is creating chaos in their lives, and they've never come to you before, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we serve a Savior who is not put off by the chaos of sin in our lives. But on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God.